All opinions expressed by Davidson Capital Management on MoneyWise are solely theirs and are based upon information they consider reliable and is subject to change without notice. You should be aware of the risk in investing in any security or investment strategy discussed on the show. Before acting, you should consider whether it is suitable for your particular circumstances and should seek advice from your own financial or investment advisor. Past performance is not indicative of future results. You're listening to Money Wise with Davidson Capital Management. Got your Money Wise guys back inside the Money Wise studio with me for this weekend show. I have my brother Jeff, Joe Rust, and I am your host, Kyle Davidson. For any new listeners to the Money Wise program, Davidson Capital Management is a fee-only registered investment advisor. We're in our 34th year of business And with offices in San Antonio and Corpus Christi, we have your investment management needs covered throughout Central and South Texas. And if you'd like to learn more about us, you can go to our website at davidsoncap.com. Or if you'd like to give us a call in our office on Monday to discuss your personal financial situation or take advantage of a portfolio review and analysis from your Money Wise guys, you can reach us in our San Antonio or Corpus Christi office toll-free at one 800 275 2162. If you'd like to send us an email, you can send all emails to moneywise at davidsoncap.com. And don't forget, you can subscribe to the MoneyWise podcast through Apple Podcasts or any of your favorite streaming podcast apps where you can leave your comments. And don't forget to like the show. So as we kick off every weekend's MoneyWise program, I turn it over to my brother, Jeff, to go into the numbers from Wall Street from last week. So, Jeff, take it away. Okay, in the week just passed, the Dow Jones Industrial Average was down about 47.5 points, or one-tenth of 1%. The S&P 500 last week was up 55 points, or 1.4%. And the NASDAQ last week was up about 492 points, or 4.4%. Now, for the year to date, the Dow Jones Industrial Average is down 3.9%. The S&P 500 is up 2%. And the NASDAQ year-to-date is up 11.1%. Thank you, Jeff. You're welcome. Well, I think uh, a lot of the conversation we're going to have on this weekend's Money MoneyWise program is going to be a continuation from the topics that we discussed on last weekend's show, and namely all the situations that's going on in the region, regional and super-regional banks. Um You know, I know listening to some of the media, particularly leaning far on the right on Fox News, I definitely would take exception to some of the very dramatic and dramatization that was brought to the airwaves, whether it was Tucker or whether it was Sean. Now, I like both these guys, but sometimes they go just a little bit overboard. I I must wholeheartedly agree with you, Kyle, because I... You you might listen. You may see a lot more TV than I do. I listen to a lot more radio, going back and forth to the office. And yeah, the the far right leaning conservative talk radio, which I'm generally a supporter of. Um, full disclosure here. Uh, there, the, the the fear that from the words that they were saying were, re- were really ginning up fear, and. I think it's a. I think it's really unnecessary, and 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 I think it's definitely being used um, to blood to to you. I think it's being used politically. Well, of course, absolutely. You know, number absolutely. one, and number two. I think I think there's also an element of marketing because generally a lot of the far right leaning uh, programs, all of which I enjoy most of the time 
are promoting uh, gold. You know, they're promoting other types of investments. You know, Dad was telling me about one that I actually heard coming back uh, from uh, Austin when I went up to visit the church on our annual meeting a few weeks back, and they were promoting some kind of investment that had that was had like a, and I'm serious, quote unquote, guaranteed return of like over 10%. And I was like, I'm driving. I wish I could write down this. Uh, th- this website and figure out what it is. Did you figure out what it was, Kyle? No, it's it's a real estate investment trust primarily focused in office spaces. And okay. <laughs> um, some of the reports I'm reading and a lot of uh, interviews I've heard, uh, when you've got 40 to 60% occupancy in office spaces across the country, I don't think using the G word when you're talking about a real estate investment trust focused on office space is a very wise thing to do. But again, it's marketing and who's going to hold them to task. I mean, we have dealt with multitudes of different non-traded real estate investment trusts. I know one client in particular of ours, it took us over five years to get his initial investment out of it. And I know, Jeff, you've dealt with non-traded real estate investment trust, Joe, Next to annuities, it's the second worst thing you could possibly buy in your portfolio. I would be curious to know how many uh, non-traded REIT uh, investments that were sold, say, in the last maybe more a little uh, more than two years ago, that you can get your money out of right now. I really, I'd like to know because the one that came across my desk got shut down last year. And they have no plans on offering any sort of redemption opportunities for their for their customers, and they're not the only ones. So I do find it uh, yeah, this 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 throwing out this return. Whenever it sounds, ladies and gentlemen, whenever it sounds too good to be true, it is, and it's not guaranteed. And no. if they're going to offer, if they're going to promote some kind of rate this high. You know it has to have risk. Yeah, Joe. Well, I wanted to add one thing because this is the quarter where you start doing 401k reviews. In the past, there's even been real estate funds in 401k plans that haven't been liquid. And so you have to be on the lookout for that, too. If you're going to put money in a real estate fund in a 401k, typically they're pretty liquid. But you might, you need to do your research on that as well. And anyways, it's just a sidebar. Well, but, well, and, and to add on to Jeff's point, as far as these outrageous rates of return that are advertised in, in radio programs or television commercials, I mean, always look at the ten-year Treasury as kind of your 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 base your baseline. And if the ten-year Treasury closed on Friday at three point four percent, and they're offering three plus times that in a quote-unquote guaranteed, that should kind of raise your warning flag or your hurricane flag, you know, maybe not pass your smell test. And I know we've talked about non-traded real estate investment trust or REITs or REITs on this program over the years. But next to annuities, which every longtime listener or any new listeners, we absolutely despise in any way, shape, or form, this would be second on the list. I think we would all agree because we have seen how they don't perform and then the exorbitant amount of time it takes to get your assets out, because particularly with a non-traded real estate investment trust, it's the board of directors that has to approve how many shares each individual holder who's looking to liquidate can liquidate 
on a quarterly basis. So you might put in your request that I want to get everything out, and they say, well, Mr. and Mrs. Client, we're going to let you liquidate five shares. We'll talk to you next quarter. It's even more basic than that. It's real estate. You can't just turn around and all of a sudden, okay, I buy a property and turn around and all of a sudden sell it for a profit or get my money out of it. It's just it's basic fundamental investing 101. I mean, I mean, I mean, real estate is, is, is another asset class. It is an asset, but it's an illiquid asset. And the one piece of advice we have for all of our listeners is don't load up your basket of real estate and be over allocated to it in this illiquid asset. Well, let's take our first commercial break. You're listening to Money Wise with Davidson Capital Management. Your Money Wise guys will be back after this. Welcome back. You're listening to Money Wise with Davidson Capital Management. If you'd like to learn more about the Money Wise guys, you can go to our website at davidsoncap.com. Or if you'd like to give us a call in our office on Monday to discuss your personal financial situation or take advantage of a portfolio review and analysis from your Money Wise guys, you can give us a call in our San Antonio or Corpus Christi office toll free at 1-800-275-275. Two one six two. If you'd like to send us an email, you can send all emails to moneywise at davidsoncap.com. And don't forget, you can subscribe to the Money Wise podcast through Apple Podcasts or any of your favorite streaming podcast apps where you can leave your comments. And don't forget to like the show. So if you're just tuning into this weekend's Money Wise program, Last segment, we got a little bit off track, a little sidetracked, uh, because anytime you know you bring up non-traded real estate investment trusts or these commercials making these out, outlandish claims of quote unquote guaranteed rates of return, we we just jump on it like a pit bull on a raw T-bone steak, and we just are solely focused in trying to provide that education to help investors avoid these investments in their portfolio, which are extremely Ill- illiquid and take forever to get out. So let's shift gears and get back to what the markets have been dealing with really going back to Thursday, two weeks ago with the initial failure of Silicon Valley bank followed by signature bank. And then first trust, which this past week got a bail out, I should say from what was it? The four or five big money center banks all put their money together to provide, was it $60 billion? I think it was like, 30, I think it was was 30, 30 billion, billion. And the larger the money center banks contributed more in terms of the billions. And then it, there were several other smaller, the money center banks, I think that were contributing like a billion a piece. It, it didn't seem to do anything with the stock price. Cause on Friday, that same bank was down, I think double digits again. Mm-hmm. Uh, <clears throat> so the, the, the contagion fears are still in the marketplace. Uh, it has resulted in interest rates falling a little bit more in the week just passed. Not as much, I think, as than the previous week, but I see the ten-year Treasury yield declined again, almost another three tenths of a percent. I, I had it out on Friday at three point four one seven. The two-year, I believe, was trading under four percent yields on Friday. Yes, uh, so. The, the the inversion between the twos and the tens has certainly narrowed tremendously uh, here of late, but it, we still have a slightly inverted yield curve. But the the movement in rates, these movements that we've had in rates in the last two weeks, we haven't seen this type of movement. I think you got to go back to the financial crisis to see this kind of movement. It, it's there's so much trading occurring 
in on in the interest rate. You know, we we had just bought no no sooner had we bought another two year treasury. I think it was the Friday before, if I'm not mistaken. You are Kyle, correct. Yes, uh, that we got just over a five percent yield. And, you know, we, we've, we've all been debating in the, you know, was that, should we have bought more? You know, I was in the camp that I thought interest rates were going to go higher. Kyle's been more in the camp that he thought that was kind of peak, you know, peaky. None of us thought what was going to happen the week following. None of us. This was not part of, uh, of our investment strategy, but when it happened, uh, we got out the playbook from 2008 and looked at all the things that we did, and all those things are still on the table. Uh, we did not execute any of them in the week just past. We bought nothing. We sold nothing. We didn't make any changes to our money market accounts. Things to me seem, you know, calmer. The news, as you as you rightly pointed out, Kyle, the news seems to be, you know, if you're on the right leaning side. It's fear and gloom and doom on the left-leaning side. It's everybody stay calm. We have the adults at the controls. Now, if Dad was here, he would be laughing his, you know, what off? Child, please. Yeah, child, please. Exactly. Thank you, Joe, um, that, that the adults are at the controls. But. These, you know, these are these are our leaders. You know, this is this is what they're doing. So, uh, adults, adults by age only, but not not <laughs> by expertise or, or, or mental capacity. Now, so the Fed, you know, brought out, and I don't think this was talked about on last week's show. I think this was the occurrence for this week. Brought yeah. out a a an emergency funding program. As a matter of fact, now that I'm thinking, you know, recalling, looking because I was watching everything hour by hour all weekend. Because we were, you know, I was wondering if there was going to be another shooter drop. We were looking at the situation with what was going on in the Swiss banks. There was a lot being said about, you know, they need to come out and, and, and they need to come up with a funding facility or something, whatever they're going to do. Because they were, they were concerned that the banks weren't, these two banks were not going to get uh, bought out by somebody. And if they didn't get bought out by somebody, then the Fed was going to have to step in or the FDIC was going to have to step in. And they ended up, you know, get, guaranteeing all deposits. Now, if I'm, if memory serves me correctly, was that announced before Sunday. last week's radio show? Yes, that was Sunday. That was, was announced Sunday. Monday. They came out on Sunday and said, even, even the unsecured deposit, the uninsured depositors. Thank you, Joe. At these banks, we're going to be made whole. Okay, so. Let me get this right. So the so the Roku company that had what three hundred million plus dollars in that almost a billion. Thank you. Half, half a billion. Half a billion dollars in SVB Bank insured to two hundred and fifty thousand dollars. Wouldn't you? And it's like, what? what where's the financial controls there? I, I don't know. Well, there was What's no the way. Thing? There was no way that. The leadership in control right now was going to let their buddies in the VC business and the uh, California tech world tech world take it in both sides of the pants on this and decide to come in and guarantee all the deposits. Now they're using this. Well, they were what's the what's the term? They were of 
now now it it, it escapes Sorry, I mean me. it's 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 a bridge it's a bridge the, the, there's a program well no, there, but no but there's there, it was systemically important that yeah, they systemically guarantee important. all the depositors the insured and uninsured portions of all the depositors in both of these institutions and then later in the week Janet Yellen comes out and says well don't expect us to do this for every bank only if they're systemically important what does that mean it. Yeah, define systemically important well, because they have to have because, a supermajority to approve it in the House. They have to have a supermajority of the House. They have to go through all kinds of hoops if they're going to do that in the Fed. So what? Yeah, just, but but what, what, Joe, you're talking. I mean, you're the Fed had a supermajority asset relief program, though. Yeah, but, yeah. but what what was created on Sunday basically allows any bank that needs to go and get money from the Fed to be able to make their uninsured depositors whole is they take their bond portfolio and they, they carve off the chunk of assets they need from their bond portfolio, and the Fed will, exor- will absorb those bonds and allow them to be marked at their par value, basically what they will mature at whenever that occurs, no matter how far out on the, uh, on the, uh, on the uh, yield curve. And allow them to use that as collateral to borrow money to make all their depositors right. whole. So that was what came up. That's what they came up with on Sunday. Now, I will say this. Lessons were definitely learned from the financial crisis when it came to the Fed and came right. to kind of keeping it out of the hands of Congress. Because I remember when the first TARP vote, Jeff, remember that back in 08, when the first TARP vote failed? Right. And we were, st- I remember standing at dad's Market office service. and we were all like, and we were like, what are these morons in Congress thinking on both sides right. of the aisle? Took a couple more days and it finally got passed. Well, the Fed responded very quickly to this situation with Signature Bank, which failed this past weekend, last weekend, along with Silicon Valley Bank for them to come up with this idea. Now, granted, right now it's not being funded by the taxpayers because everyone that has FDIC insurance has to pay an insurance premium. So that's where these funds are going. But I know, Jeff, before we went to air, you were saying that the Fed has now absorbed $300 billion in, quote, you know, in marked to par bonds that well, the Fed I, I, has now brought I, I, under it, their balance sheet. So this lending facility that you talked about was taken advantage of, was used to fund the uninsured portion of deposits in Silicon Valley Bank and Signature Bank. $143 billion of the $300 billion that has been lent out so far went to just those two banks. Now, the balance of that has been borrowed by other banks that have not failed, that have not been seized by the FDIC, but their balance sheets needed to be shored up, and so they pledged these securities, as you as you uh, described, Kyle, and the and the Federal Reserve lent them money to shore up their balance sheets. So now there's 300 billion dollars in lending that's out currently to these banks. Now we know two of them that have failed. The Federal Reserve will not say who the other banks are or how many there are. They're, they're keeping that secret. Probably and, rightly so. Yes, Kyle. And I want to also point out to all of our listeners, all of these loans are based are collateralized with right. their bonds. So it's not like it's just free money that's been coming from the Fed. This is all have assets, primarily treasury bonds attached to it. So it's important for everyone to understand that they are it's a collateralized loan because of the issues with the Fed raising rates as fast and as high as they did last year, affecting these banks that have bonds. Treasury bonds in particular that are out 10, 
15, 20 years on the yield curve and just absolutely took it in the shorts from an unrealized loss standpoint as rates rose. But let's pick up this conversation on the other side of the break. You're listening to Money Wise with Davidson Capital Management. You Money Wise guys will be back after this. Welcome back. You're listening to Money Wise with Davidson Capital Management. If you'd like to learn more about the Money Wise guys, you can go to our website at davidsoncap.com. Or if you'd like to give us a call in our office on Monday to discuss your personal financial situation or take advantage of a portfolio review and analysis from your Money Wise guys, you can reach us in our San Antonio or Corpus Christi office toll-free at 1-800-275-2162. If you'd like to send us an email, you can send all emails to moneywise at davidsoncap.com. And don't forget, you can subscribe to the MoneyWise podcast through Apple Podcasts or any of your favorite streaming podcast apps where you can leave your comments. And don't forget to like the show. So if you're just tuning in to this weekend's MoneyWise program, continuing our recap of all the happenings from Wall Street from this past week, a lot of volatility, a lot of trading uh, taking place, and then in particularly focusing on the banking issues that we've been dealing with going back uh, two weeks ago. I know, Joe, there was something you wanted to, to say before and to, before we went to the break. We ran out of time, so I'll turn well, it over to you. Sure. So the last segment we were talking about how they're determining they're going to go ahead and make sure they, they cover these, these deposits and the depositors. So basically, Yellen came on and talked about a bank only is getting that treatment if it's a majority of the FDIC board and a supermajority of the Fed board. And I, in consultation with the president, determine that the failure – to protect uninsured depositors would create systematic risk, yada, yada, yada. And they, she got a little bit of pushback on that. But the other So you're telling was, me, so you're only telling me these smaller community banks, if they're in this situation, what it sounds like you're telling us, Joe, is that the Fed's going to tell them to go pound sand? To, to my point, Jeff had a point about who the depositors are. Well, who are the main depositors for uh, Silicon Valley Bank? And then tech. signature, so look, yeah, tech, and what else? Crypto with signature, crypto, sixteen yep. billion dollars of, of of assets or digital assets are deposited with. I mean, hello, McFly. And so, so, so we're saying they're the giving prefer, they're giving preferential treatment to potential potential political donors from the left side of the aisle and, and speculative people that are depositing money with a bank that are typically speculative. What is venture capital? It's spec it's speculative. What is cryptocurrency? It's speculative. This isn't your run of the mill regionals or super regionals that are depositing. Hey, I've got a pawn shop down the street and I got yeah. about $300,000. I'm going to invest with you and $50,000 of it is over the FDIC insured limits. I digress. Well, so, so, so Joe, so Joe, I'm smelling a little bit of conspiracy theory or are you, uh, whatever. You, yeah. But, <laughs> I'm just done with it. I'm well, done with no, the bed and done with them all. But anyway, but, but no, but, well, but, but no, that's a very, that's a very interesting point though, that you did bring up because these two banks, one on the East coast, one on the West coast, that are both in industries that are very large supporters of the left side of the aisle. And then, like you just said, that it's up to the Fed to determine if someone's coming to put their bonds up as collateral to mark them at par value, whether or not the Fed is going to give them money for it, depending upon who their quote-unquote depositors are. So I'll be curious if anyone in the Midwest or a Midwest regional bank that has a lot more companies that have deposits on hand that are more right-leaning, to see if they get that same type of treatment. Ooh, we'll see. That was but good, I think, Joe. I think what's I think what's going what's going to be happening now is there's going to be probably a wave of consolidation 
in the smaller banks. Uh, uh-huh. The money center banks aren't going to merge. You know, J.P. Morgan's not going to merge with Citigroup or anything like that. But these smaller legally, regional banks, yeah, yeah, legally, small, I don't think smaller they can. regional banks that that might have uh, the, you know their balance sheets or their loan book exposed you know, to too much lending in certain uh, parts of real estate, maybe a lot, maybe they got a bunch of, you know, office space or they've got strip centers or they've got, you know, real estate that may, may be very challenged in a potential recessionary in economy that, that may be ahead of us. You know, I think there's going to be consolidation in, in that marketplace. Now, do I have any, any any stock picks in that uh, space? Uh, no, I don't. I don't have any stock picks in in that space at all because there's still. You look at the, like the KRE. I think that's the uh, banking regional regional, uh, regional, regional banking. ETF. Yeah. I mean, it's they're getting hammered. It's, so it's a roller coaster. It's, it's I, I want to all, point something out. Yeah. So listening to Warren and 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 she was on CNBC and they're talking about. Regulations. Well, all right. We already know how the bigger banks, bigger money center banks are regulated. To what degree are they going to start passing regulations and enforcing these on the on your regionals and your super regionals? So an ETF like KRE. So maybe some of the fluctuation or some of the selling off you're seeing is not necessarily on what's happening right now, but on what's going to happen in the future and what's going to happen to these margins and the profitability of these these regionals, regional uh, regionals and super regional banks. Just well, Joe. You know, what might- about what what about some of these smaller community banks that aren't able to meet these potential new stringent requirements that Elizabeth Warren was talking about? And like Jeff said, it, it consolidates the industry. But when you hear of money center banks like Bank of America or J.P. Morgan taking in north of $10 billion in a handful of days of new deposits, and I heard Jim Cramer mention this a couple of days ago, that I think J.P. Morgan is now holding off for big, large uh, customers up to five months before they will onboard them. Like literally, J.P. Morgan said, "We're not taking any more big deposits from banks. I mean, from 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 other companies to put their deposits with us. I mean, how many times have you heard a bank not wanting to take deposits? Well, so what what could be coming? Preview of coming attractions is. Credit rating agencies are going to start cutting credit ratings on some of these uh, regional banks or if there's any smaller banks that have uh, you know, publicly traded debt or what's going to happen on their earnings that come out here in the next few weeks. Well, these all these banks that might be in this group that's having a lot of outflows of depositors, in order to meet those outflows, how much of their securities do they have to sell? prior to their being able to borrow money from the Fed and and taking those losses is going to affect their balance is going to affect their profitability how many of those banks are out there will there again will their profitability be affected to such an extent yeah that we'll see some consolidation in the industry might might be great for uh, a financially strong regional bank might not be so great if you're on the other side of the trade well, and, and what about what about what happens to these responsible regional and super regional banks that had diversified client bases that were doing all the right things, had proper risk management, proper bond management, they get lumped in with the whole group. Right. You know, and, and, and I and I feel you have to feel bad for these banks that possibly are getting a run from depositors when they've been doing all of the right things 
and they just get lumped in with these irresponsible banks like Signature, like Silicon Valley, and it just gives a black eye to the entire industry, but then it also stirs up emotions with investors. And as I've some past conversations I've had this past week with clients, I'm like, this is not the financial crisis 2.0. The Fed acted very quickly. They set up a facility to be able to tap into capital and to tap into liquidity. And I think what could potentially be the silver lining on the other side of this is that this could be possibly shortening the time frame of the Federal Reserve raising interest rates and how high the Federal Reserve is going to be taking their terminal rate because we obviously have a meeting coming Wednesday. You know, a week ago, Wednesday, this past Wednesday, it was 50 basis points and they were going to be raising at least two to three more times and possibly taking the terminal Fed fund rate above six. Then Silicon Valley Bank happened two Thursdays ago, and now what? Now there's a 50-50 chance the Fed's not going to raise rates at all come Wednesday. I'm in the camp they'll raise 25 basis points or a quarter of 1%, but they could be looking to slowing down the pace of quantitative tightening, which is currently $95 billion a month of bonds they're allowing to roll off their balance sheet. They might be cutting that back or stopping it for a period of time. The Fed might raise a quarter of 1% and say, you know what, we're going to put pause. We're going to hit pause and see what the fallout is going to be from this banking situation over the past two weeks when it comes to the economy. So let's just take things slowly. So this could potentially be the silver lining, because I know, Jeff, you talked about this on last weekend's show when Orange County, California municipality had issues, and it caused the Fed to basically raise rates one more time and then stopped, because this is the unattended consequences that the Fed maybe had in the back of their mind as they were doing their, their rate increasing cycles starting last March in 2022, and now the unintended consequences is smack dab in their face with what's yeah, happening with banks. But the difference now is we've, we've still got a Fed fighting inflation, and even though the numbers in the week just passed were a little better than expected, both on the CPI and the PPI numbers, the Consumer Price Index and the Producer Price Index, we're still running you know six percent year over year inflation, which is which is way above two percent. And so the the balancing act next week, you know, we've been talking about all these Fed meetings, how you know this is the most important one we've had <laughs> in years and years and years. And now it's been ratcheted up to a whole new level with with what has happened here in the last few weeks. If they go 50 basis points next week, Jim Cramer may come out with the They Know Nothing Part 2. He might now, lose his mind, Jeff, if he, that he were might, to happen. He, he might. might actually have a heart attack <laughs> on air. The, the, something the, like that happens. The consensus seems to be 25 because it kind of splits it down the middle. It looks, it makes it look like we're talking, you know, we're, we're still uh, attacking inflation, and at the same time, we're taking notice of things breaking in the financial system, and kind of gives a little bit of something to everybody. But it's all, it's always, you know, it's only going to be about, it's, it's about that uh, news conference afterward. Is there really going to be a more dovish shift, a more indi- an indication that this may be the last one, or this may be uh, a pause for a few months until the dust settles on what's happening in the in the banks? You know, that's going to be very. It's going to be. A, we're all going to be glued to the to the TV next next Wednesday. That's for sure. 
Well, sorry, Nick, I want to make yeah, a, this yeah, this coming Wednesday. Well, I want to make a point when we come back from break. We'll do that after this. You're listening to Money Wise with Davidson Capital Management. Your Money Wise guys will be back after this. Welcome back. You're listening to Money Wise with Davidson Capital Management. If you'd like to learn more about the Money Wise guys, you can go to our website at davidsoncap.com. Or if you'd like to give us a call in our office on Monday to discuss your personal financial situation or take advantage of a portfolio review and analysis from you Money Wise guys, you can reach us in our San Antonio or Corpus Christi office toll free at 1-800-275-275. 2162. If you'd like to send us an email, you can send all emails to moneywise at davidsoncap.com. And don't forget, you can subscribe to the Moneywise podcast through Apple Podcasts or any of your favorite streaming podcast apps where you can leave your comments. And don't forget to like the show. So, in our last segment of the first hour of this weekend's Moneywise program, you know, another point I wanted to make as far as what the end effect is going to be from the Fed rate decision and the situations we're dealing with with the banks. And again, talking last segment about the potential silver lining of the Fed ending rate increases sooner, keeping their the Fed funds rate lower, because I, I think... I think I'd be remiss saying that there, there's got to be some type of an economic effect. I don't want to use the word fallout, but there'll definitely be an economic effect because if we had a contagion of sentiment and the banking stocks and then also in the market in general, well, there's got to be some kind of sentiment effect when it comes to consumption and people going out saying, you know what, I was planning on taking that trip, but uh, I don't know, I'm feeling a little bit nervous with what's happened in the banking sector, so maybe you hold back a little bit. So this could have an end effect of helping inflation accelerate, you know, lower, quicker, which, again, it's going to take time to see how much of the quote-unquote potential fallout there might be from this. But as I said in last segment, this is not the financial crisis 2.0. There is a lending facility in place. Uh, it makes sense with what they're doing. The Fed's absorbing bonds marked at par by these banks if they need to shore up their balance sheets and need some liquidity. So at least the Fed acted very, very quickly. But we've got to get further away from the fallout of a Silicon Valley bank and get sentiment back focused on the markets, back on fundamentals well, and in away from these banking situation. As soon as we get get done with next week's meeting, and everybody has a chance to reposition their one day portfolio, because that's about what's been happening right now. It's a tradable market. It's a very difficult investing market. Um, we're going to be staring right at you know earnings season. You know, we're right here at the end of the quarter. Uh, we'll only have, uh, once the Fed decision takes place, we'll have, what, uh, one, two, five, seven trading days left in the quarter after the, after the decision is, you know, occurs. And then we're going to be talking about earnings. And, uh, we haven't heard daily squat about earnings on any companies here in the last few. It's all banking all the time. Mm-hmm. Um, so the effects economically, I, I do think that there's going to be – this will maybe help the Fed a little bit when it comes to getting inflation down a little faster because it, it might give people pause about, you know, making uh, making making decisions about whatever they're going to make a decision on to, that, that, you know, maybe, maybe stock up a particular purchase or a company might slow down on investment. You know, who knows? 
but it seems deflationary to me. Is it deflationary enough to get the Federal Reserve to stop raising interest rates? That's a big, big question mark. Big well, question. Well, and, and you know, you we you talked about the one story back, you know, historically, what happened with with uh, Orange County, California, yeah, and the Fed's total, decision. This is not. This is. Different. I understand. I, I understand. Totally it's different. I understand it's it's different, but I can talk about was, leading economic indicators, and and we had the eleventh in a row negative. Well, I think we've been all on the record that that we have a higher probability of most likely of seeing a recession this year, but I mean, it could be uh, it could be a mild, it could be a very mild recession. Yeah. We're not talking it's approaching deep, an impossibility that a, that a recession will not occur with that with that kind of statistic. Because it, yeah. they keep it keeps setting a new record. We're up to eleven now. Yeah, so it, it'll be you know obviously Wednesday is going to be an extremely important decision in the press conference in particular to see if Jay Powell will see how dovish uh, the Fed is going to be speaking to see if it's going to give fuel uh, to the buy side. But you know I can tell you from a volume standpoint, like you said, Jeff, this past week, uh, really starting Thursday two weeks ago has been a trader's market and not an investor's market. So for us, from an allocation standpoint, for a moderate allocation, we're still hovering right around a 41% allocation to stocks. We've got our fixed income side working hard for us, position-traded money market working hard for us, and very light liquid cash. We've got plenty of funds to take advantage as we get through this squall in the banking sector. So just would give the advice to all of our listeners, investors, keep your emotions in check, be patient. As we've been saying all year, you have to be patient. But before we go to the top of the hour break and head into the second segment of this weekend's Money Wise program, I just wanted to uh, to talk a little bit about uh, Jim Lago. For any longtime listeners of Lago in the Morning and fans of his, uh, he passed away uh, on Wednesday of this past week. And we just wanted to, to talk a little bit about him because if it wasn't for Jim Lago, we wouldn't have Money Wise. Right. You know, it started with Dad at a Christmas party in 2004 and meeting uh, uh, what, at the time, city councilman Mark Scott. And, and Mark turned him on, to, uh, told, told Jim Lago about Dad, and, and Jim had Dad on uh, when he was over at KEYS to talk about football. I can't remember if he was in person or on the phone. And one day he asked me and Dad and I to go to the KEYS studio and talk about Social Security. And this was probably, this was sometime in the spring of 05, right before Kyle uh, came on, uh, came, came to Davidson Capital Management. And I do remember sitting there in that studio and how nervous I was. You know, dad was, <laughs> he was used to being in front of hundreds of thousands of people on football, you know, doing football games. And that's certainly way out of my wheelhouse. And we talked about Social Security on, on Jim's weekend show. He, he then changed to go to work for KKTX. And, uh, in the, in the fall of 2005, that's when we started, um, money wise with Davidson Capital Management. And he led us. He was the leader. He was kind of getting our feet wet for, I think, I don't know, it was like a couple of months or so. And I, I, I want to tell, I mean, we don't have a lot of time, but I'm going to tell a funny story, Kyle. You probably don't remember this, but you and I had to try out to see who was going to be the leader. And and one time you did, you were the leader of the show, and the other time I was the leader of the show. And I don't know who, I don't know when Jim called or who he talked to, but when he called, he said, 
Kyle needs to be the leader of the show. He he wasn't he wasn't shocked in any words. Shocker, exactly. <laughs> and Kyle has led the show ever since. But but the other part of that story is, you know, he originally was the host of the show and we right. were the guest. And I remember the one weekend we went in and he was we go into the studio and he said, All right, Kyle, here's the board. I'll show you how to run it. I'll stand and watch you, but you're you're doing the show today. And so to say that it was trial by fire and being thrown to the lines, that's exactly what Jim did. It was sink or swim. So, you know, we just have Before to Before you go out, Kyle, I do have the original show. I do plan on posting it on the radio, on our on our website with a little tribute to Jim. Give us some time to get it up there. But it, it's kind of funny to hear us doing that very first show with us as Bunny Wise. It was on November the 5th, 2005. And I'll get it up there on our website. Yeah. You're you're a legend, Jim, and you'll definitely be missed. I'll miss you. So with that, we'll go to the top of the hour. You're listening to Money Wise with Davidson Capital Management. You Money Wise guys will be back after this. Welcome back. You're listening to Money Wise with Davidson Capital Management. If you'd like to learn more about the Money Wise guys, you can go to our website at davidsoncap.com. Or if you'd like to give us a call at our office on Monday to discuss your personal financial situation, or take advantage of a portfolio review and analysis from your Money Wise guys. You can reach us in our San Antonio or Corpus Christi office toll free at 1 800 275 2162. If you'd like to send us an email, you can send all emails to moneywise at davidsoncap.com. And don't forget to subscribe to the Money Wise podcast on Apple Podcasts where you can like the show and leave us a comment. So as we're diving into this second hour of this weekend's Money Wise program, shifting gears into investor education is like we like to dedicate the second hours of every weekend's program going in and really pulling the curtain back and trying to educate investors uh, all across this state and anyone who's listening to our podcast and our terrestrial radio show and was thinking about some topics from an educational standpoint, and, and wanted, I came up with a title, and I alluded to it just a little bit, but I wanted to talk about, in this second hour, of the things that Wall Street won't tell you. Now, to give a little bit of history of Davidson Capital Management, why our father started our firm back in 1989, is he wanted to pull the curtain back on Wall Street. Pull the curtain back, bring integrity, honesty, ethics, transparency into the investor-advisor relationship. And in all of our years of business and all the hundreds upon hundreds and hundreds of portfolios, portfolio reviews we have done, we have come to just notice a very ongoing consistent theme when we do these portfolio reviews. And we're doing portfolio reviews from prospective clients that have accounts at Merrill Lynch, Morgan Stanley, Ameriprise, Fidelity, Schwab, Edward Jones. I mean, you name any major uh, brokerage firm in this country that markets on television, print, ad, computer, what have you, follows you all across the internet, we have reviewed these types of portfolios. And over the last 30 plus years of being in business, we just see these very consistent themes recurring again and again and again in prospective clients' portfolios. And we talk about it from time to time during the first hour of the Weekend's Money Wise program throughout the years. 
but I wanted to dive a little bit deeper into this topic and really pulling the curtain back and talking about the things of what these big Wall Street firms are not going to be telling you as an investor. And as we've said from day one on the Money Wise program is that you always have to dig deeper. You, you cannot take things for face value. You have to have your questions on hand when you're out there interviewing a prospective advisor that you're wanting to work with, or if you're already working with an advisor, questions that you need to go back and ask and get these answers. And if you're not receiving proper answers or answers that are just not making you feel very at ease, then maybe it's time for you to take advantage of a portfolio review and analysis to get that second opinion. And that's the purpose for us to be doing the portfolio reviews and analysis that we do and have been doing for the past 30 plus years is to give that second opinion to investors. So one of the first trends and themes that we're constantly seeing from all these major brokerage firms when we do portfolio reviews is portfolios that are just chalked full with a multitude of exchange-traded funds, and mutual funds. And when I say chalk full, I can take an example of prospective client's portfolio who was working with Fidelity. And in one account, not only had over 30 exchange-traded funds, but had over 25 mutual funds. So we're talking over 50 individual positions in either mutual funds or exchange-traded funds. And the first question that comes to my, my mind is, why? Why do you need so many? Why is this shotgun blast approach where tiny bits of this prospective client's assets were allocated to such a vast, large number of exchange-traded funds and mutual funds? So I think you have to remember about exchange-traded funds, but you know, by and large, the exchange-traded funds that we invest in and we see that in these other organizations invest in uh, they are in in and of themselves diversified investments they have hundreds of different securities inside say an individual exchange traded fund same holds true for mutual funds they can contain hundreds of different investments so when you have a portfolio that has 50 60 different exchange traded funds and mutual funds and each one of those exchange traded funds and mutual funds holds 100 plus securities. Well, you can imagine, well, that's it just if you each one of them held 100 securities and you had 50 different positions, that would be 5,000 different securities. Now, they don't actually own 5,000 different securities in, in all of these uh, exchange traded funds and mutual funds combined. What they end up, what ends up happening is, is there is so much overlap when you look at the portfolio in totality. They they might have ten different exchange traded funds and mutual funds that invest in the exact same asset class, which mean me like large cap growth stocks, or small cap growth stocks or mid-cap growth stocks, or value stocks, so on and so on and so on. And so at the end, at the end our opinion is when we see a portfolio like this, to, to us what it appears is it appears to be marketing more than anything. 
because it's not really serving the client. It's it, it's it's over diversification in names, but it's really over. This is so totally over diversified. It makes no sense to to design a portfolio in this way, except for one reason, and that is marketing. In well, our opinion. and and the marketing that also is appearance. Right. to appear as if they're doing more right. in your portfolio than what they actually are. Because at Davidson Capital Management, if you're in our asset builder program where we own nothing but exchange-traded funds and no-load mutual funds, we don't have 25 different exchange-traded funds or mutual funds. You know, There's been times where we've had maybe up to nine, maybe 10, sometimes seven. What we do as portfolio managers as in-house money managers as we vet each and every one of the positions each one of the exchange traded funds and mutual funds to determine if they're in our opinion from our analysis and research the best of breed for the respective asset class that we want represented in the portfolio at this particular time and so i want to hold right there and we'll pick up this conversation on the other side of the break you're listening to Money Wise with Davidson Capital Management. We'll be back after this. Welcome back. You're listening to Money Wise with Davidson Capital Management. If you'd like to learn more about the Money Wise guys, you can go to our website at davidsoncap.com. Or if you'd like to give us a call in our office on Monday to discuss your personal financial situation or take advantage of a portfolio review and analysis from your Money Wise guys, you can reach us in our San Antonio or Corpus Christi office toll free at one 800 Two seven five two one six two. If you'd like to send us an email, you can send all emails to moneywise at davidsoncap.com. And don't forget, you can subscribe to the MoneyWise podcast through Apple Podcasts, where you can leave your comments, and don't forget to like the show. So if you're just tuning in to this weekend's MoneyWise program, we'll continue with investor education and talking about what Wall Street won't tell you. And so before we went to break, talking about portfolios that we have reviewed that just have a multitude of exchange-traded funds and mutual funds, a, a situation where you get over-diversified in a portfolio, and why these major brokerage firms across the country do this. And in our opinion, it is for marketing. It is to appear as if they're doing more work in a client's portfolio than they actually are. And so before we went to break, I was talking about the process that we go through inside of our asset builder program where we own nothing but uh, no-load mutual funds and exchange-traded funds. And these are for clients that have less than a million dollars of investable assets in one singular account. Now, when we go through our process, we're looking for best of breed. So when we're looking for a large-cap growth manager, we're sending the large-cap growth actively managed no-load mutual fund managers through our gauntlet. They're going through our proprietary process of research and analysis, utilizing our 70-plus years of combined experience here at Davidson Capital Management to find what we consider the best of breed large cap growth manager for that particular asset class period. Not two of them, not three, not six, but the best. Now, once we make a selection of that particular no-load mutual fund for that particular asset class, they will then be continuously vetted to ensure that they're adhering to why we have selected them to be inside of the portfolio for our clients. So we're going to be looking at consistency of style. We're going to be looking at the portfolio and the information we can ascertain. What are their top 10 holdings? How concentrated or unconcentrated are they? What holdings do they own? 
do we continue to agree with their investment management philosophy? So once we buy this position, it's not just buy and forget it. We're going to be constantly sending it through our gauntlet. And if for some reason it falls out of our criteria through our proprietary system, guess what? They get sold. They get sold. So it's not just buy and hold. We're buying and it's constant homework. Joe, I know you wanted to say something. Well, sure. And I think going through this process and working quite a bit in the 401k space, we have our process already set up to where we know if one of these particular investments are going to be on the watch list. And from time to time, the three of us will put our heads together. But when you have a team approach, you really dive down deep into the, into the particular mutual funds. And one thing you didn't mention, Kyle, or I don't think, is manager tenure. You know, if you have a new manager That's in a right. mutual fund, what does that mean to that particular portfolio? We might watch it temporarily, and if it's somebody that's coming on board that's been with the team a while, and they're going to take over the day-to-day portfolio management, you know, we might give them a pass. But but also part of the numbers side of it, and we were talking about this uh, a couple times in the past, is portfolio management is just not numbers. There's also It's also art to a certain extent. And some funds may do better in a down market than others. Um, and I wanted to bring that up. Too. I mean, portfolio managers is a combination of multiple things, and that also bodes true with mutual funds and, to a lesser extent, ETFs. But, but, and again, that's where research comes into play. When we go through our research process, we're looking at upside capture. We're looking at downside capture. We're looking at all of these technical and fundamental indicators to determine whether or not we feel that this is going to be the best investment option. But what we have seen from the other big Wall Street firms is, well, let's just shotgun blast and put, let's put six, let's put 10 large cap growth managers. One or two of them have got to hit. One or two of them got to do a good year. Well, what about the rest of your money in the other five or six that are, are not doing well? What, what happens to the overall performance of your portfolio? You know, the other thing you have to determine and figure out, well, what are you actually paying for the multitude of all of these different investment options? If you do have 20, 30, 40 different exchange-traded funds and mutual funds in your portfolio. And we're just seeing this to be occurring more and more as the years have gone on. And I've had conversations with prospective clients that are with very large, very well-known, very reputable money managers where they have been told to their face that human beings do not manage money anymore at these firms. And they allow computers or algorithms to be making the investment decisions that, as you said, Joe, they're trying to equate money management down to numbers, down to technicals. But I hate to tell you, just Joe, just like you said, and this was something that our father taught Jeff and I many, many moons ago, is that managing money is a science, but it's also an art. And here's the thing that you have to remember. Algorithms are computer programs written by human beings. What if those human beings got their scenarios crossed, their math was off, their assumptions were wrong, that that algorithm is worthless. It's absolutely worthless because human beings have to write the actual algorithm. And so what we have seen in these super mega money management firms is they have become victims of their own success, of their own asset gathering to where they physically can't have human beings managing money anymore for their clients. And so then you well, as well, the they, client, they could, but they the could, problem is, the problem is it's profits. 
That's right. It's profits. It's, it's profits. So the question you have to ask, if you were a client of one of these type firms, what, what am I paying my management fee for if a computer is doing it? So I'm getting charged all these management fees for the internal expenses for the exchange traded funds and the mutual funds. Then I pay a portfolio management fee on top of that. But you're telling me that you're having a computer make the decisions because you're just such a giant super tanker of a money manager. You know, the question I would be asking is what happens if there's a dramatic event in the market? How fast can you move? How fast can you make changes in my portfolio? And they're not going to be able to answer that question and give you a definitive answer. Which leads us to really the most important part of, I think really the most important part of all this is that the person that you're talking to the vast majority of the time at the big mega wall street firms, the list that you gave in that first segment, Kyle and others is the person that you're talking to is not actually the decision maker. The decisions are made someplace else, either by a computer or a human in a computer. And you never, you have no relationship with the decision maker. The only relationship you have is with the person that's charged with maintaining the relationship. And so in in the vast majority of cases, and I have never seen in the history of us doing portfolio reviews, I've never seen any of those wall street firms beat us in terms of management fees, overall cost to the client. So if, if we're, if our, if our value proposition at Davidson Capital Management is you get to actually speak with the people that are actually making every single investment decision and doing it for less than the big Wall Street houses in much more focused portfolios. You know, our, fo- our portfolios are laser focused. The shotgun approach the shotgun approach is like putting five quarterbacks on the field at the same time or putting five pitchers on the mound at the same time. <laughs> you don't do that. What do you do? You put your best players on the field. You got a bench, but you also have the best players on the field at the right time. You don't you don't buy 10 different large cap stock ETFs and mutual funds and put them in the portfolio. That makes no sense whatsoever. Pick the best one. That's what you put in the portfolio. Why can't the big Wall Street houses with all their people and all their computers and all their uh, all the things they have at their disposal research? Why why do they have to build a portfolio where they where, where they shotgun approach everything? Yes, Kyle. I- I can answer part of that question because of proprietary relationships they have with the outside mutual fund managers and exchange traded fund providers and the revenue sharing agreements that they have. Why charge your client a one and a quarter percent management fee where you can charge them one and a quarter percent management fee, then invest their money in a mutual fund that charges another one percent. And then that manager of that 1% mutual fund kicks back to you another quarter of 1%. And now you're charging your client, you're making even more money off of one client because of the kickbacks and the proprietary relationships that they have. So then as if you're a client of these types of firms, you have to ask yourself, are the players on my field the best players? Or are they the players 
that pay the biggest kickbacks to the firm that, that I work with. So then the firm that you're working with, you have to think, how objective are they in their investment making or portfolio design process when they're getting paid X number of dollars from this outside mutual fund manager or this outside exchange traded fund manager? Are they truly objective? And I can answer that question right now. The answer is absolutely not. They are not objective when they're getting revenues shared with them. Well, let's take another commercial break. You're listening to Money Wise with Davidson Capital Management. Money Wise guys will be back after this. Welcome back. You're listening to Money Wise with Davidson Capital Management. If you'd like to learn more about the Money Wise guys, you can go to our website at davidsoncap.com. Or if you'd like to give us a call in our office on Monday to discuss your personal financial situation or take advantage of a portfolio review and analysis from your Money Wise guys, you can reach us in our San Antonio or Corpus Christi office toll-free at 1-800-275-2162. If you'd like to send us an email, you can send all emails to moneywise at davidsoncap.com. Don't forget, you can subscribe to the Money Wise podcast through Apple Podcasts, where you can leave your comments, and don't forget to like the show. So if you're just tuning in this weekend's Money Wise program, going into investor education, and uh, really this second hour, we're talking about what Wall Street won't tell you. And so before we went to break, we're talking about the lack of objectivity that we have seen, in our opinion, over the last 30-plus years of being in business with these mega large Wall Street firms from the Merrill Lynch's, the Edward Joneses of the world to the Ameriprises, proprietary relationships, meaning revenue sharing that they are receiving from outside mutual fund managers, from outside exchange traded fund managers, that clouds the objectivity of the firm that an investor is working with to ensure that these particular investments find their way in your portfolio. But the question you have to ask yourself, were these the best choices? Was this the best of breed? Yeah, Joe. Well, sure. Kyle, dovetailing on what you're talking about, and just the other week, I was reviewing a, looking at a particular firm, and one thing we do is, yes, we research our investments. We also research our competitors. We also look at their ADV Part 2, other disclosures. But if they are using proprietary mutual funds, a lot of times, the point is, what is Wall Street not telling you? Well, that firm, generally speaking, has to tell you, and it actually said there in black and white, there's a conflict of interest because this particular firm is using their own proprietary funds, and it's disclosed in black and white. So you can actually pull back the curtain on Wall Street, but you have to know how to do your own research on this. And, and most individual investors won't. You can go to broker check. You can type in the name of the firm that you working with that you're thinking about working with and you can go into their ADV part two through the SEC website to be able to research what potential conflicts of interest what other proprietary relationships they have I know of one particular firm that has commercials all the time they actually disclose how much in revenue they're receiving on an annual basis from these outside firms and so it it's no surprise that when we do portfolio reviews of prospective clients that are working with this particular firm, why we typically see the top three mutual fund families that provide the biggest amount of revenue to this firm as the only three mutual fund families that show up in a portfolio. And and, and again, this is 
this is what should really be raising question marks above anyone's head that is working with these large firms. And then you also have to ask yourself, why am I working with these larger firms? Does a larger firm that have the marble columns, as dad calls it, the fancy, you know, the fancy offices, the big name brands, the huge marketing campaigns and all the commercials and what have you, does that provide a higher level of comfort to you? as an investor, a higher level of security. I mean, that is what they are relying on. This is why they do it. They're relying on their marketing and their fancy offices and all the sharp dressed folks that work for them to, to, to create this sense of security when what they're doing in the portfolios from our reviews and analysis isn't anything to write home to mom about. It's the we're big, and so we must be good if we're this big. Yeah. It just means they're bigger, great marketers. Bigger, bigger doesn't mean better. Bigger just means they, they spend more money on marketing. That's right. They're bigger asset gatherers. And, you know, we've utilized the MoneyWise program to educate for the last 16-plus years, to educate investors, to warn them. You know, we'll, we, we will make 10 investment decisions. Six to seven of them will work. Three to four of them won't. We're not saying that we're the end-all, be-all money manager, but the one thing that the, the multiple things that we are is transparent, completely honest and ethical. And as far as from a fee standpoint, there is not another firm on the street that can touch us when it comes to the management fees that we've charged. We have 100%. no conflicts of interest. And we don't zero have any revenue sharing. No one pays us to own any of their investments. All the investments are vetted and put into and, and, and client money is invested in it based on the merits of that particular investment, not based on any sort of revenue sharing agreement that, that we that we don't have with anybody and never have had and never will have. Yes, Joe. Yeah, well, Joe. I, one of the things we're talking about is really about proprietary relationships with mutual funds. In mutual funds, ETFs, but the one thing that we always emphasize is that as asset allocation. And when you have a down market or you have a correction or during the pandemic uh, or during the financial crisis, your first line of defense is what? And we all know what this is. It's asset allocation, right? Individual uh, act- equity select. Active asset allocation. Correct. So my point being is if you are interviewing an advisor at a particular firm, and there are some that are out there that do their own research, Ask them, do they create their own asset allocation models? Are they going with what the firm recommends? That's a very, that's a question you need to ask. And if that's the case, that's great. Ask them, okay, when was the last time you made a decision on a particular mutual fund or ETF or separately managed account that's, that, that's in that allocation? So well, getting it, I, that's a big part of, of the investment management process and active versus passive management is who's doing the allocations. Well, and, and you brought up a point because – Yes, we're talking about all the major firms out there, and there are still some diamonds in the rough. There are still some traditional stockbrokers on the financial sales side of the business that deal that still do their own security selections, that do manage their own portfolios. There, there are. They're few and far between, but there are. But your line of questioning, Joe, is absolutely dead on. Where are you finding your research? Because if they are selecting their own securities, whether it's mutual funds, exchange traded funds, or individual stocks, where are you getting your research? That is a great question to ask. If they're just getting the research from the firm that employs them, 
is that truly objective? I mean, I could bore our listeners with the multi-layered process, our proprietary process that we go through in vetting every single security that we select at Davidson Capital Management, but I don't want, especially if people are listening to the show driving, I don't want to put them to sleep and cause any accidents. But when we go and do our research, we're getting our information from a multitude of different sources, not you know, not, not to also exclude our own proprietary screening process of 44 points of screens that we have put into place. Screen one, 22 points. Screen two, an additional 22 points to vet our list of individual stocks when, when we're owning individual stocks. And then we cross-reference that from a multitude of other research firms, not just one not just our custodian who's Schwab, we look at a multitude of different ones. And so that is another important question to ask. If you do work with an advisor that is actively selecting their own securities, but then to follow up if they are doing that selection is when was the last time you made changes in your portfolio? What is your performance track record? How old and long is that performance track record? Well, one thing when we're doing research and we use databases to input when we're doing a portfolio review, it's kind of interesting because there are some prospective clients that a year and a half ago, I've, I've put everything into the software, put all their positions, all our asset allocations, and then maybe a year later or a year and a half later, they haven't come on board as a client yet. And I'll say, hey, can you give me that, that statement from that portfolio they reviewed a year and a half ago? If the allocations are the same, the securities are the same, and they're charging you 1% or more, you really got to look yourself in the mirror and go, what am I doing? You know, I, and I've, I've seen it multiple times. That is not active management. That is a portfolio that is put together on hope and prayer. And, and from a, a, a scientific versus, you know, science versus art perspective, you look set at it. Yeah, set it and forget yeah. it is not a long-term successful investment strategy. And we certainly saw this in the financial crisis of 08, 09, uh, where we met with prospective clients that had monies invested with the big Wall Street firms. And when when a client tells you, well, I lost 40%, 50% in, in 2008, well, I know two things that happened. One, there was far too much money invested in stocks in that particular portfolio and two no one was managing anything to have lost that much money and that's what the vast i think the vast majority of the uh, of the wall street firms uh count on the statistic that the market's going to be up 80 percent of the time that's just what the statistics say 74 percent but close okay 74 percent since 1926 and so they, they play the probabilities. We just stay invested all the time. Yeah. We, we, we very rarely sell. We very rarely reallocate. We just, we're, we're always Final. in it for the long, we're long-term investors, quote unquote. <clears throat> and so the, the other 26% of the time when the markets are down, every once in a while, you'll have a 30% down year. It's very rare, but they're out there. Most of the time it's down five, down 10 whatever. But the point of the matter is, is there's no active management occurring. And really the key to long-term successful investment management 
It's not necessarily beating the S&P when you have years like when you have back to back or back years of up markets. It's keeping your hole shallow when the markets are down. That's where a real active management comes into play. Yeah, because remember, you lose 50% of the value of your portfolio. You have to make 100% just to get back to where you started. And I want to pick up on that point on the other side of the break. So let's do that now. Let's take our next break. You're listening to Money Wise with Davidson Capital Management. We'll be back after this. Welcome back. You're listening to Money Wise with Davidson Capital Management. If you'd like to learn more about the Money Wise guys, you can go to our website at davidsoncap.com. Or if you'd like to give us a call in our office on Monday to discuss your personal financial situation, take advantage of a portfolio review and analysis from your Money Wise guys. You can reach us in our San Antonio or Corpus Christi office toll free at one 800 275 2162. If you'd like to send us an email, you can send out emails to moneywise at davidsoncap.com. Don't forget to subscribe to the Moneywise podcast through Apple Podcasts where you can comment and don't forget to like the show. So, in our last segment of this weekend's Moneywise program and wrapping up our investor education on what Wall Street won't tell you, and right before we went to break, we were talking about what, what what we truly believe what builds and maintains long-term wealth. It's not capturing every percentage gain in up years. It's keeping your hole shallower in down years, playing a great defense. That is the best long-term strategy for offense. So we were talking about all the major brokerage firms of every name brand that you could think of that has commercials and print ads, what have you, going through situations like the financial crisis or even going back to the dot-com bubble bursting. As Jeff said in the last segment, when the stock market 74% of the time since 1926 has had positive returns, when we have those abnormal years where we're down, have a 30% down year like during the financial crisis or have dramatic, long, protracted pullbacks in the market, brokerage firms are just going to say, stay the course. Just stay the course. You don't want to You don't want to make any adjustments. You don't want to make any changes. Well, we would recommend, yeah, you don't go 100% to cash. We would agree with every Wall Street firm in existence. You never go 100% cash because that is a failed strategy. But playing a great defense with the proper allocation, active asset management, very stringent proprietary security screening process, and keeping that hole shallower allows you to recover that much faster. Because let's say you go down. 50% and you need 100% to get back to where you started and to get to that 100% it's going to take the next two to three years to get there well what if your portfolio was only down 15% and then you were able to get back in at a lower price with the cash that was raised because there was active management and you played active defense your portfolio would be far ahead of a portfolio that just was static during this downturn and didn't play defense. Another reason why Wall Street doesn't pay defense is because of revenues. Absolutely right. Because if they if, if they were to reduce securities in, a, in an investor's portfolio and go to cash for a period of time, those that that those securities that were sold would not be generating any revenue sharing for the firm because they would no longer be in the portfolio. And we saw that a lot with one particular firm, which I'm not going to name that has a lot of revenue sharing agreements. Uh, 
but that's that's probably the biggest reason why Wall Street doesn't sell when 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 times get you know capitalism the nature of capitalism is there's going to be booms and then there's going to be periods where things are very quiet flat if you will and then sometimes they're busts that's just the nature of capitalism and so in the bust times if Wall Street who's who would already be suffering because it was bust times would go in and start selling in mass securities out of their clients' portfolios. Remember it's buy low, sell high. If they did that, then they would also be cutting their own throats and reducing their revenues even more. And so they don't. And that's why we time and time again, we hear in the when we the tough times, there will be tough times again. There always are. We'll see these same folks in our offices telling us their story. Well, you know, we were doing so well for so long. And that's the other thing. You know, people get complacent. Investors get complacent when the markets do well for extended period of times. They don't care about revenue sharing. They don't care about way too many. They they don't care about management fees. They don't care about the, the, the excess number of securities in their portfolio. They don't care about how they vote, have 10 large cap mutual funds in their portfolio and 20 small cap mutual funds in their portfolio because every month I'm getting a statement and it's going higher and I'm making more money and I got a big smile on my face. And you get complacent. But then when it turns, it's like you come visit you know, someone like Davidson Capital and we look at the portfolio and say, well, here's the reason why the portfolio – Failed so miserably in the down markets for this, 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 and this. Oh, and by the way, you're paying this for all of this this failed strategy. And people are like, wow, I wish I'd have known this. I wish I'd have heard you earlier. I wish I'd have heard if this we had segment. A dollar, if we had a dollar for every time we have heard that over the last 30-plus years, and we hear it all the time. And so our recommendation would be to save yourself the grief, not getting complacent, as we have always said, and take this right from Joe, stealing your thunder, Joe, knowing what you own. Well, if, if you don't truly know what you own, you don't truly know what your asset allocation model looks like, you don't know how much you're paying, you don't know if it's being actively managed, this is why we offer portfolio reviews and analysis to prospective clients to get a second opinion from a team of portfolio managers that have over 70 years of combined experience that truly manage money in-house, that do our own research, that select our own securities. And oh, by the way, we haven't said it this whole segment, we eat our own cooking, meaning we personally own the same securities our clients own. So you can bet that they've been vetted to an inch of their life because if they're going to be going into my portfolio or Jeff's or to Joe's, they're darn good enough to be in our clients' portfolios, and they're going to be properly managed. So save yourself the grief before that downturn or on the other side of a downturn when you've lost 20, 25, 30% of your nest egg's net worth because you felt that, well, I was with so-and-so firm. They're so well-known. They've been around for 70 or 80 years. They have hundreds of billions of dollars under management. They're supposed to be good because I hear about them all the time. What? Why did they not perform for me? And this is what happens. They're great asset gatherers. They're great victim, marketers. 
great marketers. They're the victims of their own success at asset gathering to where they can no longer truly actively manage money hands-on and leave it up to a computer algorithm that was also written by a human being that could have a lot of different failed strategies in that algorithm and and who winds up becoming the victim of all of this? You, the investor. This is why we do portfolio reviews, to peel, to pull that curtain back and to tell you and to teach you and let you know about the things that Wall Street won't tell you. With that, we're coming up to the end of this weekend's Money Wise program. Again, if you'd like to give us a call, you can reach us in our San Antonio or Corpus Christi office toll-free at 1-800-275-2162. You can send all your emails to moneywise at davidsoncap.com. And don't forget, subscribe to the Money Wise podcast on Apple Podcasts. And with that, for Jeff, our good man Joe, this is Kyle Davidson wanting to thank you for listening to this weekend's Money Wise program. And to your financial health, we will talk to you next week.